from the Rose City in beautiful downtown Portland, Oregon, home of bikes, books, bridges, beards, food carts, startups, and indie coffee. Grab your dog, snatch your hammer and beer, leave your umbrella at home. Welcome to the Tiny House Podcast. It's the Tiny House Podcast! <laughs> wow. Hi, I'm Perry. Hi, I'm Shale. This is Mark. Perry's nuts got him high. Exactly. <laughs> I've been eating my own nuts. Uh, I bet we're not the only people. I bet all of our listeners are, when they turn on the podcast, they always wonder, where's Perry going with this right now? <laughs> uh, we had a few shows right in a row where you were rapping. I don't know. Oh, boy. It must have been all like the same day recording or something, like three shows right in a row. Oh, you boy. Were, we he was just in a, in, a, in a shtick. He and was. It was kind of funny. Like, here we go again. Yep. Tiny House rapping. So, there you go. So, um, how is everybody? Awesome sauce. Very good. It is kind of nice, isn't it? Yeah. Especially here in Portland, Oregon. Awesome. It's always nice in Portland. Yeah. Yeah. Not much more to say other than that. Well, what do you guys think about those scooters that are seen around town these days? I know what Mark thinks about them. Oh. Come on, Mark. I want to hear. Not a fan. Because? Well, I mean. They're crazy tourists They're crazy. They're not. Well, they're locals too, but they're not paying attention. They're on sidewalks. They're not looking around. They're just, you know. Mowing people down. Really? Not paying attention. Yeah. I bet that. I bet that would. I thought that would be the case. I have to admit that I've been. You know, I come downtown probably two, three days a week. Anyways, besides just coming down for the podcast. Fascinated. They're everywhere. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you have them out where you live? No. Really? No, not yet. I wonder if they're They're in Beaverton. Everywhere, Mm -hmm. but I can tell you the one thing that surprises me the most. Although I don't know that I would either. Um, most people don't wear helmets. You're supposed to, apparently. Yeah. Where are you going to get one? I know, like right? Well, I know. That's just a legal checkbox, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a illegal. it's a reason to give you a ticket if the cop. It's a reason to give you a ticket. They can give you a ticket. I think so. If you you're, you, yeah, you're supposed to. You're supposed to wear a helmet, and apparently, you're not supposed to go the maximum speed of those things. What is the maximum speed of those things? I think they can go 35 miles an hour. No way. That's a death trap. Yep. So let, let's just, it's for the for the audience that may not know what we're talking about. So all of a sudden, it seems like, almost overnight. Well, what happened was, is the Multiple permit, companies. Yeah, the permit process was um, very, very slowed. And so really? while they were going through the, while the first company was going through the permit process, mm-hmm. the other two came along. And so they ended up with, I think, three or four companies that all ended up literally launching on the same day. I did not. How did you yeah. know this? I don't know. I read social media <laughs> shit. They just kind of came out of nowhere, it seemed like. Yeah. And then... They were sitting all over the place, and then people just started hopping on them and riding them. And I have to say, people are really enjoying this mode of transportation. Yeah, I have to try it. I would say I think I enjoy it, too. And again, to further the listener's visualization, these are two-wheeled scooters. They're like razors. Right. So it's like a skateboard with a handle on it. Like that's, you know. But they're motorized. Right. They're electric. Yes. How do they get charged? Are they solar charged? How do they get charged? I don't know. I don't see any solar panels. I think they're solar charged. Really? And and you rent them by app. Yes, like a buck. I think it's by the minute or by the... Five minutes. I heard something. it was a buck an hour. I haven't yeah, done it's a it buck. yet. Because a buck an hour? Yeah. yeah. But I, they're absolutely everywhere. Have yeah. you, you haven't tried it yet, Perry? No, and I, I don't think I want to because I. What? I, well, I was talking with Mark over lunch one day about how 
everybody has a little bit of conservatism in in, in mm-hmm. them. And for me, like as an as an example, I'm conservative with regard to bike riding. I don't like sharing the la- the bike lane with an electric bike. Okay. With an electric bike. Mm-hmm. Two wheels. It's two but wheels. They're, but they're not putting the effort in that you are. It's, so not, it's not that. It's that they're going fast. They're mm. fast. They're not paying attention and they're going fast. They're paying attention, but they're just fast. Yeah. And so, and they have a motor. Right. I don't care that it's electric. They should be in the motorized mm-hmm. lane, not Uh-oh. in the bike lane. Okay. And so, so I'm conservative in that way. But at the same time, I recognize my conservatism in that respect. Right. And so right. I, I temper my frustration and just allow, just try not to get cranky when a guy on a motorized bike zips by. I temper my frustration with a paintball gun at them. (laughs) (laughs) So I feel the same way about these scooters. The thing is, I know that if I get, if I try an electric bike, I'm going to love it. Right. And so the same thing with the scooters. If I try the electric scooter, I think I'm going to really enjoy it. anywhere again. (laughs) Right. I, I don't think that will happen. But the convenience of ha- like they're in my neighborhood. I live six miles from downtown Portland, and yeah. they're in my neighborhood. They're everywhere. Yeah, I mean, Alberta, Mississippi, yeah. Fremont. I mean, they're everywhere. It's crazy. There's like five companies, no, five brands. Is Just five in Portland, I think so. Three, yeah. I thought, I thought so. I thought I've seen a couple others launch. What I thought was really crazy about it too is the fact that with the bicycle, with the Nike bikes, right? Yeah, they have like these corrals. Mm-hmm. All the bikes are the same color. Mm-hmm. You know, like here's, and you go on the app, and it'll be like there's a corral of 15 bikes that two blocks down. With these um, scooters, they're everywhere. The people they're just, just leave them. It's just, just a drop and go. Exactly. Yeah. It's literally, you can leave it anywhere you were. Like, you see them in front of, like, literally on, on I know, street corners. It's and crazy. It's like, is somebody going to steal them? And then if they <laughs> steal them, they still know where they are because obviously they have GPS, you know, chips in them or yep. whatever. <clears throat> and I'm like, what? I just, mm. the whole business model is just fascinating. Me to too. Me. There's and a few chips in the river. Them. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> I bet, I bet, Why I not? bet. So, like the um, what's that? What's that place down there where um, uh, McCormick, not McCormick, the seafood restaurant that's floating out there? Oh, the, what is that part of town called? Is that a Pier One? No, it's a water. I want to say Waterfront Park, but it's Tom McCall. Tom McCall. Oh, Tom McCall. Yeah, the waterfront place where the park, restaurants yeah. are. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, they worked with the city of Portland to outlaw them around there. You can't ride the scooters through there. You can ride a bike through there, but you can't ride the scooters through there. Hmm. That makes sense, but crazy. does it? Because they can. You can ride them up along Waterfront Park, right? And their people, the people love those things. I mean, they they came at some sort of perfect convergence of people wanting this kind of transportation and supplying them and. I'm just amazed that they just came out of nowhere, it seems like. Well, like I said, I would not consider, like, for instance, if I'm shopping in downtown Portland, yeah. and there's a really cool boutique on the other side yeah. of the river that's even like three or four blocks yeah. from the river itself, mm-hmm. I would never leave downtown Portland to walk all oh. the way over the river and down Burnside, yeah. even three or four or five blocks to get to that boutique yeah. that's showing up as really yeah, cool. Yeah. Right. I'm Portland... You know, and maybe it's this mental block with the whole crossing over the freeway and under the freeway and over the river, not like whatever that is. Um, and now people are, it's really expanding from my perspective. It's really expanding um, the commercial, you know, shall we say, opportunities for Portland as a whole, not just Portland, not just Alberta Street District. But I mean, you wouldn't think uh, twice about going right. from Mississippi Avenue to downtown yeah. if you're on a scooter as yeah. opposed to walking. Yeah, right. There now, you've killed that horse. Well, I'm curious to see what's going to happen as the Portland winter comes on. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, nice. nice. 25 and miles snow. an hour with the wind, wind chill. Yeah, and ice. Yeah, I'm, yeah I'm, if, if, and rain. Yeah, mm-hmm. people will obviously not um, ride them as often um, when it's yeah. cold. Yeah, but we'll still have stupid people that will try them on ice. I think so. I think so too. I think so too. But I think the ridership's going to go way down. I think so. Yeah. Well, I the first know. company that came I out saw with a stupid tourists on them. I mean, yeah. That's the thing. Maybe local ridership may go down once yeah. the once the catch is gone. Yeah. But the tourists love them. Go get your voodoo donuts on a scooter. On a scooter. <laughs> no, the first company that came out, and I can't remember which it was because, frankly, I don't give a shit. But anyway, <laughs> but within a matter of like less than sixty days, I think it was had a billion dollar valuation. Yeah. What? That, that's why. That's well, why all these other competitors. Here. They launched yeah, Boston, in like yeah, no, yeah. five or six Central, cities yeah. simultaneously. Wow. Um, wow. But yeah, I'd be fascinated to see what their initial investment on those are and the lifespan. I know, and me too. Like and I, how do they maintain them? I know. How do they go get them? I mean, it's one thing to know that it's on this map, but I they don't must know. have vans where they drive around and like collect them and like they bring must. them back to the downtown. Because otherwise, you'd get all of them out in these bizarre neighborhoods <laughs> and you'd not have any left in downtown. Yeah, yeah. There must be like trucks that go around like collect them and yeah. you know wipe the throw up off of them <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> Yeah, throw up. <laughs> Speaking oh, of throw up, drunk driving, <laughs> drunk driving on a scooter. I bet that's illegal too, huh? Oh, for sure. That's funny because I got the domain. Drunk driving on a scooter. <laughs> Just kidding. Just if kidding. You don't, but I'm, I'm gonna, gonna get it now. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Go look and see if it's yeah. available. So, um, yeah. So I, I, I'm sure there probably might, or not. I'm sure there may be another new entrance. I'm making a transition here. Yes. There right. may be another new entrant into that market, but but let's pass on that idea and, and talk about the new entrance into the tiny house market. Cosme Hernandez and his company, Tiny House Cribs. Cribs. <laughs> Michelle throwing up some gang signs. <laughs> Straight out of Compton. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Sorry, Rick. Sorry, Cosme. We're just making. Do you live in LA, Cosme? No, I don't. No, you're in Washington, right? No, I was actually born and raised in Visalia, California, which is about two and a half hours north of LA. Oh, your website says you're in Malaga, Washington. The manufacturing location's in Malaga. Yeah, we're based out of Malaga, Washington here in Wenatchee Valley, right off of the Columbia River that actually crosses through Portland. Yeah. But you're not there. No. Oh. So I guess my first question is... No. How did... I, actually, I want to back up. Why did you decide to get into the tiny house market? And the reason why I'm asking that question is because in our the previous show we just recorded, we were talking about the major shakeout that's happening in the market and how uh, tiny house builders are just not finding a way to be successful. Long term. Long term, yeah. Mm-hmm. So what makes you think you're different? Sure. Well, just to recap here, you know, looking through my history, you know, about two years ago, I was um, searching for alternative ways of housing and... I've always been a minimalist myself. I've been on my own since I was uh, 14 years old and I uh, went off to school, figured out a way to graduate high school. And then I went off to college and I've always kind of lived minimally. And whether it was going on Craigslist, looking for a room to rent, something small where I can get by until I get to a certain financial status. Uh, so when I moved up to Washington, I was kind of in this midst of 
you know, I kind of feel like buying an RV, you know, you always see them as you're driving around different areas, RV dealerships, and, you know, you see people driving around RVs all the time. I was like, wow, what if, you know, since I'm always moving around, why not just have an RV? And so I went to different dealerships, talked to different salespeople, and what I found was that, number one, an RV, a traditional RV is not really uh, legal to live in on a full-time basis. depends on how you go about that. And then... um you know, they, I started seeing products now that, oh, full-time or all-seasons RVs, you know, RVs that are engineered for all seasons. And then when I talked to, when I started talking to those technicians, uh, they just kept saying, well, that's a good marketing strategy, but they're really not engineered for a full-time use uh, if you really look at the, uh, the techs. Um, look at the what? And the then text? at the technical stuff. Oh, the tech. Te- like the R yeah. value. Got it. And I'll, I'll, talk, I'll talk a little bit about, uh, yeah, our values, you know, the, the structural components, all that. Um, so we'll talk a little bit about that here uh, as we talk in this conversation uh, more in, uh, about that topic. Uh, but, you know, I went on YouTube just like, you know, a lot, of, I, a lot of the people that I talked to today, you know, they came about this tiny house movement through YouTube or some sort of online channel. And that's really what happened with me. So I was kind of introduced to the idea of building my own. Uh, so I started doing the research, uh, learning kind of what it takes to build a tiny house, money-wise, skill-wise, tools, equipment, the whole nine yards. So when I was about three or $4,000 in my project, just on a part-time basis outside of my full-time job, um, you know, people started seeing that I was really, really focused on accomplishing this goal and i've had uh friends family from afar or even local who would say wow looks like you're really serious um you should can you make me a tiny house too i want one and i just kept hearing that story over and over and i just kept objecting with you know what let me try to figure out how to make my own first and then (laughs) i'll I'll see if i'll see if i take (laughs) on the business later on and then I just started just getting continuously at getting those questions. And it got to a point where, like a lot of tiny house do-it-yourself builders, I exhausted my savings. I literally spent every single dime on trying to make this dream come true. The dream of your um, own tiny house. Of my own tiny house come uh-huh. true, exactly. Uh-huh. And um, and just to recap a little bit more, I, I come from a background where I unfortunately embarked on $70,000 in student loan debt. So that was a really driving force of me trying to uh, continue living minimally, but at the same time, figure out a way to get rid of the $70,000 of student loan debt. How old are you? So I'm 26 now. Okay. Yeah. So uh, I went to school in San Diego and talking about the hood, right? The whole Cribs thing. We'll talk about how the name came about here okay. shortly. Okay. Uh, so, um, so that's kind of how that happened. And, you know, just that was kind of my motivation. And then one thing hit me. I w- did some sales and marketing throughout high school um, just to make extra income, supplement my income, try to get rid of this debt sooner rather than later. And in one of those uh, training uh, sessions, I learned something to the effect of um, some people wait to seize an opportunity while other people just seize the opportunity despite of not having a product. So, and it kind of goes further with you can wait for the product to arrive or you can get the customer and make the product. 
Isn't that the Kickstarter uh, campaign model, right? Yeah. So, so something to that effect, and this was by a gentleman, um, Jim Rohn, uh, which is a person that I didn't personally meet, but I follow a lot of his teachings, books, uh, video uh, lessons and stuff like that. And um, so I was like, you know what? Mine isn't fully completed just yet, but let me look into the business opportunity. So then I started doing my research on the business side of the tiny house movement. And obviously I, you know, learned that in five, six years, it kind of started kind of catching on. And um, there's different ways to go about the business. And after consulting with my legal team, consulting with my accounting team, consulting with other business owners, uh, we ended up, part, uh, I launched Tiny House Cribs in October of last year. And this was just a part-time thing. I thought this was kind of a little part-time business I can do on the side outside of how I make my money full-time. And uh, I soon came to realize that the state of Washington does not allow anyone to run a tiny house manufacturing company in their backyard because it's against uh, codes and zoning laws. And uh, basically, which was kind of a blessing, but they basically forced anybody looking to build a tiny house business to have an actual manufacturing location and be open to the public to receive orders or people coming in and out. So what happened there is I totally shifted what my, my approach to fulfilling our vision and the vision of our company is to create a world where people can enjoy simple, classy and eco-friendly tiny homes. Um, so that's what we're trying to accomplish. And for that is I started networking locally and starting to identify different business people. And I ended up partnering up with a very successful uh, construction company locally. And then during that same process or in that same timeline, I was able to uh, partner up with an RV service technician who runs his own RV service company. So we basically, Tiny House Cribs is a hybrid, is a both, it's a combination of both our uh, residential construction experts and an RV service and repair industries. And obviously we've, you know, we, we kind of, we share folks that, you know, the, the, the Tiny House Cribs is basically a hybrid of the residential home construction and RVs and we're making it one, we're calling it the Tiny House Industry. Because uh, as we go about the legalities of creating these units safely and legally, you know, we talk about not just building these out of wood or the R values or the, the life safety of these, but also on the RV side, which we don't really do much of the RV size other than our off-grid units. Um, you know, we obviously get to learn and we get to bring both industries together and we get to create these really nice, beautiful, tiny homes whether the on-grid versions or the off-grid versions, which take up a little bit more uh, of a self-sufficiency um, system. So, yeah, that's kind of how that kind of got started. What do you think? So to circle back to Perry's comment um, at the yeah. beginning about builders actually dropping out of the market, I want to sure. make a comment, and the comment is, that, um, in Washington State anyways, that might be some of the reason why the Washington State um, tiny house builders that have been around for longer than a couple of years have decided not to stay in it. Because, you know, you're building in your backyard, that's kind of your thing, you, you may even have a big warehouse and four or five employees, 
But um, if the state of Washington now has all these regulations and you have to have manufacturing and all these other licenses, then the, maybe the tiny house builders went more underground or something, um, or they kind of went out of business altogether just because I, I, I don't want to do that. Like, like I don't the wanna, one we were talking about. Right, exactly. Like, mm-hmm. I don't want to invest sure. in that. I don't want to go that far. Um, anyways, yeah. however, circling back to, um, to your approach, um, so you talk about the, let me see. So you talk about the, these sort of being a hybrid. When I describe tiny house, tiny houses to people, I describe them as either RVs, full RVs, RVIA, Recreational Vehicle Industry of America, certified tiny houses. They have a lot of advantages. One primary advantage is they're easily financeable. Um, sure. But, however, I realized recently, I found out recently, they actually have a NADA blue book depreciation. So we may want to comment on that, maybe not. Then there's what sure. they call the hybrid units. And so it's like it may have some RV appliances or may have the same sort of basic functionality as an RV, but yet it's sure. not certified it Doesn't have or it doesn't have tanks. And then there's like the full off-grid, and that means solar panels or tanks or something that really takes it way off-grid so that you don't have to be plugged in an RV park or anybody's backyard. So out of those three types, RV, hybrid, or off-grid, what percentage of your builds falls into each one of those categories? Sure, absolutely. And let me uh, start addressing the kind of the first part about uh, potential entrepreneurs getting out of the business. And that's kind of a crucial thing because when we first launched, we the, the facts in the state of Washington, and Washington State uh, University ran a survey on how much revenue the tiny house industry is contributing to the economy. And they found that in 2017 alone, the tiny house industry uh, generated $37 million in revenue. So that, that's within not a, a lot. Within right. a 12, right. 12 month period. And this is, and if you look at, because uh, we're a licensed tiny house company here in the state, when you look at the facts, there's only five licensed tiny house companies that are fully licensed so to when, so when you make say, and sell tiny homes on wheels. So when you say uh, license, fully legit and licensed in the state of Washington. I was going to say, is that a Washington state license? Is that an RVIA license? What kind of a license so, are you talking about? So the research that we found and when we sat down with my partner who's been in the RV industry for 25 years and the, actually I can pull it up right here. I have a statement from the RVIA regarding tiny homes. I'm not sure if you guys reviewed this, um, but they, we've talked to them initially because when we did our research some people were saying uh, hey it's, if your RVIA if you certify your units RVIA you're more than likely uh, gonna uh, you know be able to do financing and all that so we did our research on that and we got a reply back from the RVIA uh, and this is what they have this public statement that they issue anybody looking to pursue to certify their units RVIA um, and for our audience here, um, what the RVEIA was very clear on is that they do not promote any of their members to promote their products as full-time use. Correct. Because the That's federal be- and state laws prohibit that. Absolutely. Yeah. So what they basically, if I can find it right here, um, 
As a matter of fact, right while you look, actually, let me fill in a little bit while you look sure. for that. So here in the state of Oregon, the governor asked her minions to go look at the tiny house industry in 2016. And in early 2017, she discovered um, or the, her minions brought back a report to her, the governor, and said, okay, we've got 10... RVIA certified tiny house builders in the state of Oregon. All 10 of them are promoting their RVIA tiny houses as full-time living options. And all 10 of them are not using any licensed laborers whatsoever. No licensed carpenter or no licensed electricians or plumbers. So in many, many ways um, That was a problem. We (laughs) haven't talked about this before, but in many ways it was the RVIA tiny house builders in Oregon that originally kind of launched the shit that we we had to go through because then there was this major oh crap so as you know here in Oregon they actually took away the RVIA tiny houses ability to license them and sell them for a while while we all got our you know while we all got our ducks in a row so um Yes, the RVIA industry or the RVIA association is very, very specific about what you can and cannot call them and how you can and cannot promote them, but not everybody necessarily listens to that to that directive. Oh, here it is. Okay. So there's a two-page sheet that the RVIA uh, created in respect to the booming industry and people wanting to RVIA certify tiny homes, and uh, this is... Let me just, I don't want to read the whole thing just for the sake of time, but um, this is kind of, let me see if I can. So it says the RVIA is a national trade association that represents manufacturers of recreational vehicles, which are typically motorhomes, travel trailers, fifth wheels, and truck campers, along with some park model RVs. Uh, they also represent uh, people who sell components like RV parts, appliances, such of that nature. So the question is, uh, can a tiny house be an RV? Tiny homes may qualify as RV, but do not. But do, but to do so, they must be built as a vehicle in compliance with NHTSA regulations, which is the Federal Motor Vehicle Safety Standards, right? Which is the National Transportation under Title Association, 49, right? And they must comply with either NFPA construction standards or the uh, the NA, NA uh, <laughs> the ANSI standards that we follow. We don't really work off of NFPA. Um, says note that these products cannot require a special movement permit to be transported on the highways. Right. RVIA maintains and inspects programs uh, for its members uh, of manufacturers. And uh, furthermore, they also say, can tiny homes be park model RVs? Tiny homes may qualify as park model RVs, but do not. But to do so, they must not exceed 400 square feet. And they must also comply with ANSI A119.5, which are the standards that uh, we make our tiny homes. We're going to talk about the state specifically on how they look into that. Well, what I want to talk uh, about specifically oh, here it is. Here's, okay. here's the important thing I want to share with, with the audience here. This is what the RVA states. The question is always, what if tiny homes are intended for permanent residences? If a manufacturer of tiny homes intends for its units to serve as permanent residences and markets its tiny house products to consumers for that purpose, then these units cannot be considered RVs or park model RVs. Instead, such homes are required by law to comply with local building codes, state modular housing codes, or the 
United States Department of Housing and Urban Development, who regulates, uh, obviously, manufactured homes. Uh, the RVIA does not represent manufactured housing pro products. Correct. So that so, would fall under the HUD. So when so, we, okay. yeah. So when we, when we, so we as a company, we obviously, we as a company, we, we want to advocate. We're advocates of tiny living and using our products to live in on a full-time basis. How, so how do we do that legally without getting in trouble? That's the biggest hurdle, right? So, so if I, Washington wait, State... Wait, 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 wait. So if I understand yeah. correctly, what you're saying mm-hmm. is is that you have decided not to become RVIA certified builder due to the restrictive nature of the certification. Would that be a correct statement? The In our wording... Uh, Tiny House Cribs is not affiliated with the RVIA because we are not promoting uh, the manufacturing of our products to be used as recreational vehicles. Okay. So where all of our products are engineered and they can be used as full-time residences. Okay. So so the, the question I had was, <clears throat> and I, I understand all the regulatory stuff that you sure. and Michelle were just going back and forth on. Sure. The question I had was, we Michelle and I, in our last show, were talking about how so many tiny house builders were falling out of the market because they just couldn't make ends meet. Sure. How? What is the business model you and your team is using that has you thinking, or actually proving, if you've been since, since you've been sure. around about a year, that you can make money at this? Sure. Um, well, we're a pretty factual company here. I mean, the marketplace is our boss. So if yeah. people are pursuing to do business with us, then we're obviously open for business. It's just business one hundred and one. One of the one of the issues that, or one of the myths, I guess, that general contractors face here. And I've before I've um, joined forces with my two other partners, I went over and talked to uh, formal, formerly. Uh, a Yakima Can- Canyon Tiny Homes, uh, very nice two, uh, two uh, visionary entrepreneurs out in uh, Yakima County here in the state of Washington, and uh, they just couldn't figure it out. They were general contractors, and just having a business location kind of threw them off the radar. Number two, working directly with the state government to license the units and get them permitted was another hurdle that they just couldn't figure out. Uh-huh. And number three is, you know, as a general contractor, you're usually servicing homes, either building new homes on subdivisions. When you're creating tiny homes on wheels, it's a totally different business model. You have to learn how to make the business work. It's not a general contracting. Yeah, we're a manufacturing company. you, You don't go out to somebody's property and build or remodel a house. You build everything on site, and then you have to work your marketing strategy around that. Um, so you have figured so, out how to license or certify or build these to some yeah, sort of code and, in Washington? And Yakima, yeah, Yakima Can- uh, Canyon Tiny Homes, they were successfully built five tiny homes in a two-year period, and all five of them were fully licensed in the state of Washington. By whom? The only issue of their business model is that they were only promoting custom-made tiny homes, and unfortunately, I think they get that because of the national TV networks who they're just really promoting custom-made, custom-made, custom-made. Here in the state of Washington, it takes about six months to fully approve and legalize a custom-made tiny home that you cannot make a sale on for six months. So that's a challenge when it comes to 
business overhead, paying your employees, paying your bills, uh, obviously feeding well, your family, yeah, and all so that stuff. And I'm still lost. So that's a challenge. I'm still yeah. lost. So, mm-hmm. what is the license or certification for these houses that are not RVIA? Sure. So every state government, what I've learned from my legal department, all of our uh, every state government uh, has the regulatory agency to fully approve and permit the life safety of units, either manufactured units, vehicles, RVs, modular homes, uh, except the manufactured homes, which are the fed, the feds right, is who right, regulate HUD, that. Right. So the the for our particular state, we deal directly with. Uh, the Department of Alani Factory Assembled Structures, yeah. who is in fully in charge of every unit that we manufacture for the life safety of the product. So whoever buys the unit, they can they're going to be issued a state insignia, which is not an RVIA certification, but it's called a state insignia that the state of Washington issues. So the buyer knows that this unit was inspected and approved for life safety and fire prevention by the state by their state of Washington, which is our public sector. So, um, so what so does that's that essentially, do for transportation of houses that go outside of the state of Washington? Does that allow so, for those houses to go outside the state? As far as what our what our legal team said, they said that, for example, if if I were to buy a tiny home from the state of Oregon that's made in the state of Oregon, we need to transfer that title or that that licensing over to this state. So that unit has to fully comply with whatever um, laws or regulations of that made product within our state. And usually, if you follow a thing such as ANSI or NFPA or whatever, whether you follow the manufactured housing standards, um, usually all that is easily transferable. But as far as by the book, that's what they'll tell you when you ask. Uh, oh, if you can transfer it over. It just has to comply with all of our state um, life safety standards uh, if you were to fully license it from another state. So I'm not sure if vice versa, if you somebody from Oregon, because we haven't had an Oregon customer just yet, um, if somebody from Oregon wanted to buy one of our tiny homes, um, all I know from talking to the state is that I give them all the legal paperwork and then them as a consumer need to license it with their state if they wish to do so. Interesting. And we recommend it. So so, so. The, so the indicator that, that we have, and, and I'm not trying to create a confrontation between you and sure. us, Cosme. I'm just trying to understand what what is your rationale for thinking you're going to be successful when so sure. many others haven't been. And so the... Sure. The, the indicator that we have had here at the show in talking with many builders, some who are still around, some who, many who have gone, the ones who have stuck around have like 10 weeks or two months of orders coming in um, and they have the manufacturing component that you and Michelle just went back and forth on tied sure. down. But the biggest success indicator is they, they have this huge backlog of people wanting their product. Do you, do you guys have something like that or have you not reached that stage yet? Yeah, well, that's that's a good uh, that's promising there to have a backlog of pre-orders. Um, you know, we've have a different business model. We're kind of like the we like to say we're kind of like the Tesla. You have certain models that you promote to the public, and it's going to be a lot faster and um, you know to be able to make those models. Uh, but if you want something totally different, something custom, we can do that. Here in the state of Washington, we're just upfront with those folks. It takes 
you know, up to six months to fully approve a custom-made model. Um, so we done our investment as far as time and money to create three models that uh, we surveyed the, the marketplace. We asked them hey, if you were to want a tiny home, what are the features and the amenities you would want inside? So we created that. So as far as how, why do we think we're going to be successful? Number one, it's a mindset. Um, it's really a winning mindset. You know, we don't, you know, we're obviously factual people, but if you think you're going to win, the law of attraction says you're going to win. If you think you're going to fail, you're probably more than likely going to fail. As far as what the marketplace shows, if you just look at the analytics on Google, there's millions and millions of people uh, researching information regarding tiny homes, whether they want to hire a builder or they want to make their own. And we have products for both. We have full tiny homes on wheels that are licensed under the state of Washington. And then we have do-it-yourself kits. People want to buy the trailer foundation. They can, you know, we can definitely encourage them to make their own. We can sell them a shell or we can sell them an off-grid kit. A lot of people get really stuck on this off-grid um, system and they don't really know how to configure all the calculations and all the components they need. So we sell all those kits uh, separately if somebody wanted to make an off-grid unit. Huh. So we have that. And this is just like any home builder. It's, it's a big risk to invest in a subdivision or some sort of real estate development where you're investing investing money and you're hoping to get a customer it's a, kind of very similar in that nature where you as a business and entrepreneur you take that risk and if you create a good product and it's a reasonable price chances that the marketplace is going to speak for itself yeah um so that's essentially it's just a winning mindset number one attitude is everything and then um we like to say fortunes in the follow-up and work with the willing. Hmm. Those are basically our, our business philosophical um, kind of categories that we follow uh, through. And uh, we're, you know, we, we think we're going to win, and I think we're winning. We're still open for business. Um, as far as what the marketplace shows, um, you know, the part, we get calls, we log in calls every single day of people calling in, uh, asking questions. Uh, wanted a, I actually recently we've been getting a lot of custom made orders. We're working on a tiny playhouse. Uh, she's a army captain uh, based out of Tacoma, and uh, recently became a single mom and uh, two little ones. And she envisions this indoor playground inside of her 30 foot long tiny house on wheels. And she wants a, a rope bridge from her loft to her kids' lofts. Uh, she has an amazing design idea. So we're just really, um, really, um, I guess, excited and, and just really taking in and evaluating and trying to continue developing new products and services as the marketplace responds. So we just, whatever the marketplace tells us they want, we're trying to do our best to fulfill that. Mm -hmm. So that's, I think that's what will keep us in the game. Um, we're not just kind of stay still with the three models that we've invested in. We're still, like I said, asking questions and uh, really uh, getting around other tiny house leaders around the state of Washington. And obviously we're here today on this tiny house podcast because you guys are like-minded folks also. So just really, uh, you know, rubbing off that energy from one another and try to do something good for the world uh, and try to fulfill our vision of, you know, seeing more of these units out there. Well, awesome. We're, we're very uh, supportive of what you're doing and thank you so much for being on the show today. It was a pleasure having you. Um, Tiny House listeners, thank you for listening to yet another Tiny House podcast. And we hope you'll...
my microphone just <laughs> did its own thing. <laughs> well, hope you come back <laughs> to listen to another one. Thank you so much for listening. Bye, everybody. Namaste. See you on the flip side. Thank you for listening to Tiny House Podcast. To find us online, go to tinyhousepodcast.com, where you will also find our show notes, if you remember to put them there. Our logo was designed by the amazing Carolyn Maine. Our website is hosted by the gang at Sightcast. Our theme music is by Oma Studio. Please go to iTunes and give us a five-star rating, or whatever. You tiny house-loving bastard. Tiny House Podcast is probably made in Portland, Oregon. <laughs>